Welcome to the London First Baptist Church podcast. This is the Sunday morning service of March 31st from Pastor Brett Cottrell. I want to invite you to open up your Bibles, not to the Gospel of Mark, but instead to the book of Genesis, chapter 22. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be doing something a little different as we prepare for Easter. Some of you guys know that uh, this past week, I got the privilege of having jury duty. I I found it really rather interesting. I spent a few days as part of a jury at a federal trial in Little Rock at the federal courthouse. And uh, all kinds of interesting things. You get to value the strategies and listen to the lawyers and the judges and all those types of things. And every once in a while, um, and by the way, it's a little different than it is on Law and Order, you know. First of all, there's no dramatic music. At no point in the trial did I hear the word, did I hear that dung dung? Never happened. But every once in a while in the trial, they will, uh, uh, they will, you know, a lawyer or somebody will ask for uh, a conversation. So they, the, the judge and the lawyers, they'll all kind of gather over there in the corner. They, they turn on this white noise so you can't hear what they're saying. And I got to admit, you're not supposed to know, but you're kind of going, I wonder what they're talking about. Because it'd be kind of interesting to find out. And every once in a while, you know, they would have a conversation, you know, like the lawyer would be up there, the prosecutor would be up there saying something, asking a question, you get the objection. Can I have a word, Your Honor, in the defense? They'd all gather over there, and she'd come back, and she would just start a brand new question. Never even go back to what they just talked about. You're kind of going, ooh, I want to know what they said. As we begin this, uh, look at, we're going to look at the, Old Testament, a few passages of the Old Testament over the next few weeks. If you remember, after Jesus' resurrection, there are a couple of guys on the road to what we call Emmaus. And in Luke chapter 24, Jesus shows up on this road, and he has this conversation with these two guys walking on the road to Emmaus. And these two guys are depressed. They've witnessed the events of the crucifixion. They've seen all these things taking place. And they're talking about it. And Jesus shows up. Ask them what they're talking about. They tell him, and they go, how, how can you not know about all these things? And it says that he began to talk with them. And he said, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? It says, then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in the scriptures. To me, this is one of those conversations I would think, I would like to have heard this conversation. I would, like to have, I would like to have heard what it was that Jesus talked with them about over these miles as he took from Moses to all the prophets. Basically, that means the Old Testament. He took the Old Testament scriptures and he began to explain to them how these things apply to Christ, to himself. I'm going, I want to know what he talked about. Now, there are a couple things in the Old Testament that might be kind of obvious to us this morning. If we were trying to imagine, does the Old Testament predict the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ? Does it, how does it point to him? And there's a, there's a couple things that might be somewhat obvious to us. We could, we could look at passages in the prophet Isaiah. And there are several passages in Isaiah that are pretty obviously geared towards what the Messiah will be. We could look at something like uh, the, the Hebrew Passover as they came out of Egypt, out of slavery. We could see in the establishment of all those rituals and the feast and the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. And we can see some things in there that clearly point to Christ. 
But the implication in Luke chapter 24 is that the, all of the Old Testament was pointing to him and that it should have been obvious to them what the Messiah was going to be and what he was going to do. So I began wondering in my mind a few weeks ago, well, what did he talk to them about? What, what did he actually say? And so over the next two or three weeks, we are going to look at a couple of Old Testament passages that I think give us hints as to who the Messiah was going to be. Now, I will say this, we are not going to see any Old Testament passage that explicitly says God's going to send His Son who is going to die on the cross and resurrect in three days. We don't see anything that explicit or that direct in the Old Testament. But what we do see, and what God uses quite a bit, are stories with, with patterns, with things that happen over and over and over again that God's hoping that we will begin to recognize. Oh, wait a minute. This looks like that, which looks like this, which looks like this. And there are patterns and there are stories in the Old Testament that point us to what the Messiah is going to be. The first one we're going to look at over the next few weeks is this morning in Genesis chapter 22. I want to read the first 14 verses of this passage. Genesis chapter 22. It came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. He split wood for the burnt offering and he rose and went out to the place which God told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and burned and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God and since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Abraham raised his eyes and looked and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Heavenly Fathers, we come to this passage. So difficult, so challenging, so frightening. May it be for us this morning 
a time of strengthening and encouraging. And Lord, may we walk away this morning knowing, if nothing else, that you are the Lord who provides. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This, this scripture for every parent is a scary one. It's a difficult passage. And in many ways, Abraham, as we start this passage off, Abraham, who's already had a, a, a long walk with the Lord that has spanned now some decades, because we know it was some 20 years between the time that God promised Abraham a son before Isaac was born. It will be probably Isaac, in all likelihood, is at the very least a teenager, if not even older than that. In this, So it has been upwards of 30, 40 years since God promised Isaac, or Abraham a son. So God has walked with Abraham. Abraham walked with God through a, a long time, a lifetime already. And in this event we see in Genesis chapter 22, Abraham is confronted with a, a rather startling idea. He's confronted with something that perhaps he didn't expect. I don't think he expected it. He's confronted with this idea that maybe God is contradicting himself. I mean, after all, didn't God tell Abraham that he would be the father of many nations, that he would have descendants more numerous than the sands on the beach and the stars in the sky? And didn't God tell him that that would happen through Isaac? Yes. So how can God, who told him that this promise would take place through Isaac, at the same time ask Abraham to kill the son before the promise has been made true? It would seem to be a bit of a contradiction, wouldn't it? How can a God, and we might ask this question this morning, how can a God who values life, who, would not, who has said elsewhere in the Scripture that he would, never, he would never require a sacrifice like this, a child sacrifice like this, how can a God who would say that, on the other hand, do this? And there is inherently here, a seeming for us, as we look at this in 2019, a, a contradiction that, let's be honest, if we read this honestly, kind of makes us a little uncomfortable that God would ask something like this. Abraham has a, a conundrum, a, a problem here. God's command requires Isaac to die. God's promises require Isaac to live. What do we do with this? What was he going to do with this? Now, we are often confronted by demands in life that sometimes seem difficult. You may or may not care about college basketball. We are in the middle of what the, many people call March Madness, the NCAA basketball tournament. I have once again been, been I, I try to do this every year, and I succeed every year. I try to be in last place in my bracket competition. And I have once again succeeded. You know, when you watch the players and you watch the coaches, and you, and you realize if you've ever played athletics, the amount of work and the amount of effort and the amount of time that goes into preparing to be successful at that level. And I remember more than one time as a, as a player at the high school level, thinking to myself, the coach is asking too much. He's pushing too hard. He's being unreasonable. That's not fair. That's too hard. I can't run that fast. I can't run that long. I just cannot do that. I'm going to get sick. And sometimes, you do. <laughs> and sometimes coaches seem unreasonable. But here's what happens. Often what happens, if you'll stick with it, you find out that the coach sees something or is pushing you in ways that you don't think you could do because he knows you, in fact, actually 
can't. He's taking you to places you don't think you can go. It's hard. It's difficult. You, you think that it's not fair. It seems unreasonable. And you have one of two responses you can do. When, when, when someone pushes you like that, you can either begin to question them, question their motives, and then say, I'm out. Or you can choose to be all in and follow and see where it takes you, even if you don't think you can get there. Now, I'm not comparing and saying athletics is the same as what God did for Abraham here. When we are confronted with something that is difficult, that seems unreasonable, that seems hard, that seems unfair, and sometimes when it looks like that God's requiring those things from us, we have one of two responses. Last week, you may remember, as we looked at the Gospel of Mark, we saw Jesus say this. He said, if you want to be my disciple, here's what you have to do. You have to deny yourself. You have to take up the instrument of your own death. Be willing to die and follow me. Now, on the surface of it, that may look like a little bit unreasonable. You mean I can't follow you, Christ, unless I'm actually willing to die? And his answer is, yes, that's correct. And the world might look at that and see that seems unreasonable, that seems harsh, that seems way too far, way too out there. Abraham would look at what God had said and say, I don't get this, I don't see how both these things can happen. How can God ask me to sacrifice to kill my own son? And he has got a couple choices here, to beg out and say, I'm out of here, no more, or to follow. One said this way, Unbelief stumbles over such problems, while a mature faith waits patiently to see how the distant recesses of the wisdom of God, hidden from a human reason and understanding, will be made known. But the waiting can be excruciating, and many people, rather than bear the pain, simply abandon the faith. In other words, when we are confronted with something that God demands that seems hard and unreasonable, we can either trust and hope that we, at some point down the road, see the, the, the method behind the madness, so to speak, or we can say, I'm out. God requires hard things of His people. So often we are thinking that the Christian life is supposed to be one of ease and comfort. If I just obey, I'll be blessed, I'll be happy, I'll be prosperous. When From Genesis to Revelation, it is the pattern of God's people to endure great hardship. Start with Adam and go to John who wrote the book of Revelation. Find one that didn't suffer. You won't. They all endured great hardship. They all suffered. They all endured. They all experienced great agony at times. Not just Job. All of them. And yet they endured and they believed. So God confronts Abraham with, a, with a, a, a conundrum, a puzzle, a contradiction. And Abraham has two choices. To trust God, to see how it might work itself out, or to abandon. Well, we know what he does. In fact, it says God came to him that night. It says the very next day, Abraham started preparing and lived and left for the trip. Now, there's also something else about here. God tells Abraham to go to a mountain I'm going to show you. He doesn't tell Abraham which one. He says, you just go to that general direction 
and I'll tell you when to stop. Does that sound familiar? Remember when God came to Abraham, Genesis chapter 13, shows that God shows up and he tells Abraham, you go that direction and I'll tell you when to stop. Abraham goes, okay. So Abraham's kind of used to this. God doesn't give him all the details. By the way, sometimes God doesn't give us all the details. Sometimes God prefers us to be kind of, well, he says, you'll, you'll get there when you get there. I'll, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you what. He doesn't give you the, the details. He likes to keep it vague sometimes because he wants us to trust him. So God gives a demand, a difficult demand. It's, it's, it's vague. And it's also immediate. Abraham rose early in the morning, verse 3, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men. I, you kind of wonder what that conversation was like. Sarah's going, Abraham, why are you getting up so early in the morning? Well, I don't know if they had this conversation or not because it's not really there. But you kind of wonder, well, Sarah, God had something to say to me last night. Well, what did you say? Well, I just got to go make a sacrifice. Really? Okay. What are you going to sacrifice? Don't worry about it. <laughs> I don't know what the conversation was like, but I do know this. Abraham didn't wait two more weeks or three more weeks or four more weeks. He didn't go back and say, well, God, that's interesting. I want to make sure I heard you properly. I'm going to go back and pray for it a little bit longer. I'm going to, I'm going to wait a little while. No, the moment that Abraham understood that God had given him directions, he knew that the command was to go now. By the way, when God, gives us, when God gives us direction, when God teaches us, when God reveals something to us, the time to apply it and put it into practice is not a month from now. The time to do it is today. Let's say, for example, God brings to your mind a relationship that needs to be mended. Maybe you have wronged somebody or maybe someone has wronged you. The time to make that relationship right is not three weeks from now. Go do it today. If God's called you to go somewhere or do something, the time to obey is now. That's what God does. He tells us what He wants us to do when He wants us to do it. So Abraham, that day, gets up and goes. He goes now. He doesn't do it three weeks later. He does it now. And Abraham responds in faith. Hebrews chapter 11, that chapter we sometimes call the Hall of Fame of Faith, talks about how Abraham thought he was going to have to kill Isaac. It's kind of interesting what, what takes place here. Abraham is on one hand confident that he's going to come back. He tells the guys who are with him, listen, Isaac and I, we're going to be back here in a few days. Y'all wait here for us. And yet at the same time, Hebrews chapter 11, we have every indication that Abraham believes he will in fact have to kill his son. What does Abraham think God's going to do? I think it's reasonable to assume, I don't know this for sure, I'm not in Abraham's mind, I think it's reasonable to think that Abraham might think that God would resurrect Isaac. Now, understand this. At this point in history, there's no, there's no stories of resurrection. And we'll get some of those later on. We'll get some of those when the prophets like Elijah are around. You'll hear some stories of resurrection. But at this point in time in history, Abraham doesn't know any of those stories. He doesn't know that. All he knows is that God made him a promise that Isaac would be uh, the father of many nations. He knows that, but he also knows God has said, give me your son. And so he's probably in his mind trying to figure out how these two are going to fit. And maybe he thinks that God will, in fact, resurrect Isaac. That is an act of faith, because he's never seen that before. 
Abraham's faith is a reminder. Like that coach sometimes, God's, God's got a, God has a way of stretching us to our limits. Physically and emotionally. Spiritually, intellectually. He will stretch us to our capacities. Things we don't think we can go any further. He will do that to us. Isaac and Abraham had to trust God. And yes, I said Isaac too. Because recognize this passage of Scripture. Again, Isaac is not, it's probably not seven or eight years old. At the very least, Isaac is a teenager. And we know Abraham is well over 100. So if Isaac resists, <laughs> there's probably not a whole lot Abraham can do about it. So at some point there was this conversation. It just says to us here, you know, it says they came to the place, verse 9, it says they came to the place which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son and laid him on the altar. That doesn't happen unless Isaac allows it. So there was this conversation. Isaac, this is what God told me. Now, I, I can't imagine having that conversation. But at some point, Abraham had to tell his son, Isaac, God told me to put you on this altar and to take your life and to burn you. Now, I don't know. Maybe Abraham said, on top of that, Isaac, Isaac I don't think this will be the end of the story. I think something miraculous is going to happen. But, but Isaac, this is what God said. And Isaac had to, at some point, go, Dad, I believe you. Dad, I trust you. Now, that conversation just kind of gets looked past, but I can't imagine what that conversation must have been like. Now, I mentioned a while ago we're looking for some patterns. I want us to see in this story, right before we get to the end of it here, what did Abraham make Isaac do up that mountain? Verse 6, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son, Isaac. In other words, Isaac is carrying the instruments of his own death up the mountain. Does that sound familiar? Is it a few weeks we remember the cross and mirrors of the crucifixion that our Lord would carry the instrument of his own execution up a mountain? Isaac, as far as we know, made no protest. He heard the instructions of his father and he obeyed the instructions of his father without protest, without questioning. He simply trusted his father. He loved his father. And so he did what his father asked him to do. Isaac laid down his life on that altar without a word of protest, as did our Savior. For there was a moment in time in, in history before the creation of the world when the fathers told the Son, when God the Father had a conversation with God the Son and says, when we create this universe, and when we create that planet, and when we put these people on that planet in our image, there will be a day they will, return, they will rebel against us and they will turn against us. But we know that we have made them in our image and we will not let them rest in their sin. We're going to redeem them. And son, here will be the process. God the Father says to the Son, It is my desire, Son, that you will go and become one of them. 
and that you will submit yourself willingly and silently to a horrific form of torture and humiliation and execution. And God the Son said, Your will be done. Do you see the pattern developing here? Now Isaac isn't simply just a picture of Christ. These analogies only go so far, but I want us to see the pattern here of what is going on. In Isaac we see this idea of the suffering son. And I think Abraham perhaps believes that resurrection is possible. I think even I think for Abraham, he can't figure out the solution to this problem, but he knows whatever it is, no matter how miraculous, how bizarre, how unforeseen it is, it has to happen because Abraham knows this. God keeps his covenants. And if God had promised Abraham that Isaac was going to be the son of the covenant, Abraham knew that that covenant would in fact be fulfilled. So even though he doesn't know for sure what this means for Isaac, he doesn't know how God's going to do it. He doesn't know how Isaac can both die and be the promise fulfilled. He doesn't know how that can happen. He does know that God can can be trusted. You know, there are any number of times in our own lives, and the, the stories of my own life are, are numerous, where maybe we're going through something very difficult and, and, and unusual and unfair, unjust, however you want to phrase it, and we might be tempted to wonder if God is there or if God loves us or if God, you know, fill in the blank. One thing I know, one thing His Word teaches is this. God is always worthy of our trust. Even when we don't understand it, maybe especially when we don't understand. So Abraham's trust is, I don't know how it's going to work out. But I know God is worthy of trusting. So Isaac gets on the altar. He's bound up and tied up to where he can no longer defend himself. The knife is raised. And what probably would have happened is that Isaac would have been laying on this altar and Abraham was most likely at the head of a son with the hand on the neck ready to slice across his neck and cut the jugular. And at that point in time, Abraham, Abraham, do not stretch out your hand against the boy. Can you imagine (laughs) what must have rushed over him at that time? Can you imagine the relief? from going probably from the the depths of his emotions. I I don't care how much he trusted God. That had to be excruciating to be in that situation. And to all of a sudden be relieved of it. I can't imagine the relief and the joy and the weight that was off Abraham's shoulders 
at that point in time. And at that moment, of course, there is the ram caught by its horns. Now, this is a powerful story, a powerful image, but what does it mean? There are two things here for us that we need to really be paying attention to, and we see them, first of all, in verse 8 and in verse 14. Let me read for you again verse 8. Abraham has been asked the question, and he says this, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. He doesn't say God will provide. He says God will provide for himself. It's a reflective idea. God will take care of his own stuff. God has asked for a sacrifice. Isaac, God will provide the means for the sacrifice that he asked for. God will provide it for himself. We're not providing it for him. God providing the sacrifice. And then verse 14. Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. Jehovah Jireh. It's on this, it's, it's the name that's on this banner over here to my left, your right. God will provide. You know, the word provide or the word provision isn't something you and I think about too much in very serious terms. Um, because we, for most of us, we have most of what we think we need. If we're, if we're honest, we have food to eat. Well, most of us are not probably wondering whether or not we'll have food to eat here in a couple hours or even an hour, depending on how long I take. <laughs> we're not wondering about that. We, um, we may use it to say that God provided for us uh, healing, maybe, or maybe God provided us a new car, or God provided us a church home, or God provided us a new building, or we, we may use it in those terms. But when God introduces himself in the Bible as the Lord will provide, as the God who is our provider, it's here. It's in the face of the rescuing of a life. God's provision here is the ability to take another breath. It's salvation, if you will. And I want us to see something here. God had demanded a sacrifice. And Abraham in verse 8 lets us know that at the very least, God will provide for himself the sacrifice which he demands. If we walk away with nothing else this morning, I want us to walk away with this. What God demands from us he provides for us. Think about a child at Christmas time, five, six, seven, eight years old, wanting to buy mom, wanting to buy dad a, a Christmas present, or maybe sometime during the year a birthday present. Does a, does a seven-year-old have a lot of money? Can a seven-year-old walk into Sears? Can a seven-year-old walk into a department store and spend a few hundred bucks on something? No. So what happens? Well, if it's mom's Christmas present, what does dad do? Dad gives the boy the money. What is expected is provided. What God demands from us is, in fact, provided to us. Now, what does this look like? I'm going to give a couple of examples. Now, these aren't the only examples, but I want to give a couple of examples. First of all, I want, to, I want us to realize that faith itself the ability to trust God is, in fact, a gift from God. We know that it's impossible to please God without faith, without trust. Romans chapter 12 says this. Romans 12, 3. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, 
but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted or God has given out to each a measure of faith. He says what, the faith, what faith you possess is a faith that was given to you. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. This is a, a well-known passage. Let me read it for you. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not that of yourselves. It's the gift of God. You've been saved by grace through faith. That faith you have was not your own. That faith is a gift from God. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Let me read this for you. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Actually, I'm going to go back and read verse 12. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy and because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. Paul says, I was an unbeliever and I acted ignorantly on my unbelief, but through God's grace, he gave me the gift of faith so I could act differently. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, we actually forgot to read that during our prayer time. It said that Jesus is the, quote, author and perfecter. What's the author? The author is the originator. Jesus himself is the author, the originator of our faith. Our faith begins with him and his actions towards. So God requires faith, but you know what God gives? Faith. Let me give you another example. God requires of us righteousness, right? We are to be righteous before. We are to be holy before God. Let me read for you again. God provides that which he requires. Romans chapter 4, verse 22. Therefore it was also credited to him, as is Abraham, as righteousness. Now not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also. To him it will, all, to him it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus from our Lord, our Lord from the dead. In other words, Abraham's faith that God provided him when he exercised faith, God credited that faith towards him as righteousness. Now, we know what the word credit means, right? If something is credited to you, that means someone has moved it from this account into your account. It's been credited, it's been given to you. So Paul says in Romans 4 that because of his faith, Abraham was credited as being righteous by God. Philippians chapter 3. This is a passage I find myself going back to so often in the course of my walk with the Lord. Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. Paul's talking here about how he was, in Jewish terms, he was the epitome, he was the example of a righteous, Bible-thumping Pharisee. (laughs) All right? He knew the laws, he knew the rules, and he kept them. And he says that all of that now is worth nothing. He says, in fact, I've considered it rubbish, his past, so that I may be found in him, that is Christ, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God. God requires of us a faith. 
He requires of us a righteousness. And we might look at him and go, I don't have the ability to have that faith. You and I are much like, you may remember in the Gospels, there was a story of a man who has a son who is desperately ill. And he brings his son to, to, to our Savior. He says, I believe, help my unbelief. He's saying, I, I, I know you can do it, but I doubt. And so I don't have enough faith. I don't have enough belief. Give me more. That's you and I. We can say, I sort of believe, I want to believe. I, but we don't have the faith of ourselves that God requires of us, so He gives it to us. You and I, we cannot be righteous, but He gives it to us. And just like the ram in the thicket behind Abraham, the sacrifice which God ultimately requires from Abraham is the sacrifice that God ultimately gives. And here is the secret of grace, and here is the secret of what we're looking at when we look at Christ on the cross. Everything God requires of you and I, all the righteousness, all the faith, all the holiness, the humility, you name it, is found in God's providing it to us through Christ on the cross. The grace of Easter is not that I come to God with anything that's worth anything. It's that I have nothing and that He has exacted from me and God has looked at me and says, I can rightfully ask of you, Brett, everything. I want, Brett, I want you to give me perfection. I want you to give me holiness. I want you to give me worship. I want you to give me trust. And I'm standing before God saying, I don't have it. I can't pay it. I've got nothing. I might as well be standing before the judge and they give me a million dollar fine and i got five bucks to my name. And then God says to me, I know you don't have it. And he takes off his robes of the judge and he walks around the bench and he gives it on my behalf. Abraham and Isaac are living for us this morning a picture and a pattern of Easter. God will provide for himself the sacrifice. That word provide there, it's an interesting word. It says the Lord will provide back there in Genesis chapter 22. That last verse we read, chapter, chapter 22, verse 14, where Abraham says the Lord, he named that place, the Lord will provide. That word provide there, most time it shows up in the Old Testament, is actually translated as the word see. And the idea is this, that God sees what is demanded. He sees what is needed. And seeing it, He does it. So when Abraham said, the Lord provides there in verse 14, that this place shall be called, the Lord, provi- the Lord will provide, it will be provided, it's very similar to verse 8, where it says God will provide for Himself. It's a reflective idea. God sees, God demands, God provides what He sees. All the relief Abraham must have felt. And while Isaac in one sense is a foreshadowing of what Christ does, on the other hand, it's Isaac's life who's actually saved by the, the ram. And Isaac is saved by the substitute. So we see the patterns. 
We see Christ carrying His own wood, His own cross. We see Him saying nothing in protest, but obeying His Father. One more little note. We can't say this for absolute 100% sure, but it's the feeling of most scholars and historians that Moriah, where the sacrifice takes place, would be the site where some decades of centuries later, the city of Jerusalem would be built. The top of that mountain would be ultimately the place where the temple of Solomon would be built. It ultimately is the place where Jesus was worshiping on the temple mount in Jerusalem where he would ultimately lay down his own life. This morning, I want us to be like Abraham must have been in verse 14. Overwhelmed with the joy that comes from the idea. With the joy that comes from the truth. With the joy that comes from the provision that God has provided what we could not. And everything that we think we have to do before God, all the rules we think we have to keep, all the all the things we think we have to satisfy. It's not until we realize we can do none of it. And let him stop the hand of the knife and provide for himself what he's asked of us. That's when we experience the joy of salvation. Did Abraham and Isaac go back and tell Sarah the story? Doesn't say they did, but how how could you not? They told somebody because we got it this morning, don't we? God is our provider of life and of salvation.